0: I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to finish this chapter today. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Kinship to Christ. Kinship to Christ. In our previous text... That we looked at last week Mark has given us something of a split screen He's introduced one scene And then he quickly turned to describe the other Both scenes giving us a view That people held towards Jesus Christ In verses 20 to 21 We were able to eavesdrop on a conversation Of Jesus' family And what did they think of Jesus? They thought that he was a lunatic. They thought that he needs to be brought in. And in verses 22 to 30, we saw that as the family is making their way to find Jesus, Jesus is in a confrontation between the professional theologians of the day, the the scribes who were commissioned and sent by the Pharisees. So we see this confrontation, Jesus and the scribes, self-appointed rabbi with a huge following, and the professional theologians who don't like how popular Jesus is becoming. Mark concludes this scene, this scene that is in and around Peter's house as his family arrives at the conclusion of, of a severe of a severe and sober rebuke and and warning that he had for the scribes. And just as he gave us, just as Mark gave us two errant, two wrong views of Jesus last week, here he gives us uh, a contrast between two responses, except only one of them is going to be a wrong response. That means, those of you who took math, can deduce that means one is right. One wrong response, one right. And these are both owned by a group of people who are close to Jesus. These are are responses exhibited by people who associate with him. In verses 31 to 32, we will see The unbelief of Jesus' earthly family. And here's a hint. They have the wrong response. And in verses 33 to 35, we will see the belief of Jesus' heavenly family. You have Jesus' earthly family, Jesus' heavenly family. Let's read Mark 3, 31 to 35. Then his mother and his brothers arrived... And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark begins this section, he says, then his mother and his brothers arrived. And this is concluding, this is finishing the action that he began all the way up in verse 20 when he said that those of his own, which is rightly interpreted as his family, we see that very clearly now, Mark identifies who it is. It is his mother and his brothers. And as Uh, verse 35 might suggest his sisters as well. They have arrived at the scene of a very crowded house occupied by a very large and tumultuous crowd of people and probably surrounded by throngs of people. Mark has spared no effort in painting this picture for us. He, He has... Jesus has utterly captivated the people of the land. People from all over, from north, south, east, and west, have come out of the woodworks to hear Jesus. Jesus does not preach or teach like the scribes. He has the clearest, the purest, and the most profound explanation of the law. If you can remember back to math school, do you remember the joy that that some of you may have had when when something clicked and someone explained how you can do math and now you have the freedom to do do it yourself or or maybe riding a bicycle, and when you discover that you can do it, you feel that the world is open to you. Do you remember that joy? And you don't have to tell anyone if it's math or bicycle riding. You can keep that to yourself. But that, that joy of things being made clear. Jesus did that for the people of the land. The scribes did not. If anything, they made the law infinitely more obscure with their additions. Jesus, in addition to a a, a clear, simple, and profound explanation of the law, he had a polemical rebuking that he uh, delivered to the scribes and the Pharisees, which shocked people and it undermined the hold that the scribes and the Pharisees had on the people. Thirdly, he accompanied his preaching and teaching with undeniable miracles. Miracles conducted against the kingdom of Satan and his demons. Miracles which demonstrated Jesus was not sent by the devil. He was not empowered by the devil. He was not possessed by the devil. In fact, he was sent by God, empowered by God, and he was the Son of God. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, were left with absolutely no excuse for their unbelief. Jesus even told them, you have the scriptures. You have the very scriptures and you study them. You pour all over them. And if you were to actually look at them with sincerity, you would see they testify of me. Jesus said that clearly in John 5.39. And he explained to the two on the road to Emmaus how from Moses and the prophets and uh, and the law, how the scriptures testified of him. But the scribes doubled down in their unbelief. It doesn't matter that they saw firsthand his miracles. It doesn't matter that they were drowning in a sea of unanimous test, public testimony. These were men who they were willing to double down in their Unbelief. they had such a hardness of heart that they will take what is clearly the power of God, clearly the demonstration of the work and the will of God, and they'll say, don't trust in that. Don't rejoice in that. That's Satan's work. That's how utterly devoted these men were to their unbelief. They are without excuse. But Jesus' family didn't see miracles firsthand. So are are they off the hook? Well, let's think. Why why did they not see miracles firsthand? For one thing, consider that Jesus didn't grow up as a wonder-working prodigy boy. Jesus did not go around uh, making things and and, and exercising his divine power as a youth. John tells us in John 2.11 that when he turned the water into wine, that this was the first of his signs. And in Matthew uh, 13, 58 and Luke 4:29 to 30, we're told that Nazareth, at his hometown, actually rejected him as Christ. And subsequently, he left. And on the occasions he did return, he only did very few miracles because of their unbelief. Thirdly, John 7, 3 to 5, John tells us, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also see your works, which you are, which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself wants to be known for publicly. So if you are doing these things, which you're not, I'll provide that for you. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Make yourself known. And John tells us, for even his brothers were not believing in him. So Jesus actually did what they suggested he do. He went out into the world. He did just that. He and that's what Mark has been telling us. Jesus has gone. Has come. He has gone out preaching the gospel, the gospel which says he is the Christ. He. Is the son of David. He is the coming king and the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises. He is the son of God. He is sent by God to save the people of God, which is why he says at the very halfway through chapter 1 and verse 15, the kingdom is at hand. Therefore, repent, believe. The gospel. Incredible proclamations. Incredible proclamations and then backed up by incredible demonstrations of his power. He demonstrated his power and authority befitting one sent and approved by God. What did the father say at Jesus's baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am. Well pleased. God thought rather highly of the son. But his family did not believe in him. As I I briefly alluded to last week, I, I think Mary is excluded from this. Joseph is entirely absent, which many take this to suggest that he's passed away by now. It wasn't uncommon for for a a man to marry a a young lady a little younger than he was, so in, in all likelihood he's passed away. Mary doesn't rebuke her sons, which again I would just say, how many times have we failed to do what is right when we know what is right? So Mary failed to do what was right, and I would suggest don't try to rescue her. When we read through the Scripture and we see the saints sinning, don't feel that we have to justify their mistakes their errors their sins they are people just like us there's only one exception in the scriptures of someone who never sinned so the scripture doesn't try to, to rescue her or defend her we shouldn't either at the end of the day she failed to rebuke her sons so I would I would suggest The unbelief is mainly Jesus' brothers. Mainly his brothers, and John three seven John seven five tells us clearly they did not believe in him. They didn't believe in him and hearing what he's saying, hearing the things he's doing. They think he's a lunatic. Brother Mine, if, if, if you watch the BBC, you would, you would hear a phrase, Brother Mine. Brother Mine has lost his marbles. He, Jesus, Brother Jesus is, is in way over his head, and he is going to get himself killed unless he stops. He needs to be brought in. He needs to be controlled because control is something that he is lacking right now. And so Mark tells us in verse 21 that his family departs to, to seize. Jesus and by the time by the time they arrive Jesus has finished his encounter with the scribes and so they are outside Peter's house which has experienced a lot of action these days and as they arrive they arrive standing outside they send word to him and they called him and a crowd was sitting around him him and they said to him the the crowd says to him behold your mother and brothers are outside looking for you well, that sounds nice they're looking for jesus they're seeking jesus that's good but why are they seeking jesus they they want to get close to jesus well so does everybody else But they don't want to get close to him so that they can sit at his feet or so that they can learn from him they want to get close to him so they can detain him They want to seize Jesus, if necessary, by force. But they can't because what is blocking them from getting Jesus? When they arrive on the scene, what's between them and their target? The people, the crowd. The crowd in and around the house. Now, this isn't the first time in Mark that we have seen a group having a hard time getting close to Jesus while he's teaching. We saw earlier that a, a, there was a paralytic that needed some healing and his friends, they, they, they had a, they, they were very, uh, 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 they put a lot of effort into trying to get him to Jesus. In fact, you could say their effort went through the roof. Jesus' family doesn't do that. Now, either Peter has just finished rebuilding his roof and he doesn't want to uh, fix it again and puts a, the roof is closed sign over the ladder, or Jesus' family more likely figured maybe getting to Jesus isn't the problem because in all likelihood the, the crowd would probably have parted, but then they would have the problem of getting Jesus away from the crowd, And that would have been greatly more difficult. And so the best option, really the only option, is to have Jesus, is to call on Jesus, to send for Jesus, to have him stop his teaching and have Jesus come out to them. So they send a message. They send a message up through the ranks and shoulders are tapped. Words are whispered into ears, and the message that his family is here slowly works its way to Jesus at the center of the crowd. And finally, we don't know how long it took, finally, at the behest of the family, the crowd interrupts Jesus. The great teacher and preacher is interrupted and he stops his teaching and he is informed the one who who should be dispensing the information to others is now informed your family's here as verse thirty two ends they are looking for you again this word looking they're looking for Jesus they're seeking Jesus that sounds good we should you know, it, it, people. Sh- we should encourage people to seek Jesus, right? Well, I want you to consider how Mark uses this word most of the time in his gospel. Almost 100 percent, he is using it in a very negative way. In eight, eleven, and twelve, the scribes and Pharisees were seeking a sign from Jesus, not not so they might be saved, but so that they can test him. Eleven, eighteen. They were seeking how to destroy him. 1212, 12, they were seeking to seize him. 141, seeking to seize him by stealth and kill him. 1411, Judas was, began seeking how to betray him in opportune time. 1455, they were seeking false testimony, testimony against him. So not many people are seeking Jesus in this gospel for the right reason. When when people seek Jesus, Jesus is not getting what he wants. Now, granted that his brothers weren't trying to kill him, granted they're not trying to harm him like the Pharisees, they were nevertheless trying to stop him. They were trying to silence him, which is, that was the same end goal as the Pharisees. They want to end his lunacy. Put a stop To the madness and put him away where he's not going to rock the boat so much. After all, they figure if he doesn't stop, the family could get a bad name or worse yet, he will get himself killed. Blasphemy, blaspheming God was grounds for being stoned according to the law. Now it is actually the very thing that the scribes are saying of him. And so the irony, you can't miss this, the irony is that the unbelieving brothers see those as who must save the Savior. His unbelieving brothers think they're the ones who need to save Jesus. So I want to ask you, do you see the contrast that Mark is drawing here? You have the family on the outside of the house, you have the disciples, the crowd, on the inside. And Mark tells us that not once, but twice. Look at look at the end of 31 and 32. His family is standing outside. Verse 2, they are outside looking for you. And then uh, twice we're told that the crowd is on the inside. Look at the beginning of 32 and 34. The crowd was sitting around him, looking at those who were sitting around him. You have the family outside. You have the disciples on the inside. The family is outside standing at the end of 31, while his disciples, the beginning of 32 and 34, they are sitting around Jesus. That was the posture that that the student, that the acolyte, that the follower took Around the teacher they would sit at his feet the family is out there calling jesus They are out there calling the one who in the gospel up until now has been the one doing the calling Jesus is the one who who calls people mark one twenty, james and john He called and immediately they left their nets and their father and the hired servants and the family business and they followed jesus In 2.17, Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus is the one who calls, and here is his family calling upon him. And they're assuming. I I have uh, Kiwi friends who would say assume, but they are assuming. I, I have to accentuate that every time I see that word. It's stuck in my head. I don't know why. I'm sorry. They, they are assuming that because of some familial obligation, he is he is obligated to respond to their calling. All the while, where's Jesus? He's in there preaching and teaching to those who gladly, who willingly are yielding to his calling, responding to his calling. Those who have obeyed his calling. Do you see the contrast? so when G- when Mark says that Jesus' family is on the outside, he's not just talking about spatial proximity, he's talking about a spiritual proximity. Jesus' family is on the outside in more ways than just one. With this contrast drawn, Jesus takes this rather rude and presumptuous interruption by his earthly family. he He takes this as an opportunity to teach. About his heavenly family. Which is the theme of. Verses 33 to 35. And this is in contrast to the unbelief of his. Earthly family. This is the belief. Of his heavenly. Family. Now there are many things that Jesus. Said. That left the people utterly astonished. That left them. Speechless. And he has done just that in verses 22 through 30. He has sternly, he has soberly, he has severely and seriously warned the untouchables. He has warned the scribes. who, who re- They're in the same camp as the Pharisees. They represent the Pharisees. He has warned and rebuked the scribes that they... Those who were in a position to accuse others of blaspheming God, he's accusing them of doing the very thing. He is accusing the untouchables for committing the the, the worst crime in Israel, blaspheming God. And so tensions, tensions are already high. Tensions are already high as this conflict between team Jesus and team Pharisees is rapidly escalating far more quickly than in Matthew or Luke or John. We're in chapter three and and the Dukes, the Dukes are already up. And so you you have to picture you have to imagine what is the crowd thinking? What are they what are they saying? As as news spreads, not just not just in a beeline to Jesus. But after this guy tells this guy, who's this guy gonna tell next? These guys. Hey, did you did you hear Jesus' family's here? Jesus' family's here Oh, oh, they don't look happy. They don't oh I mean, well, and then this guy over here says, Hey, well, would you be happy if your brother just told off the scribes? And then this guy over here says, oh, they're, oh, they're probably going to take him back home. And then this, then the family in the back says, I haven't been healed yet. I have a child who still needs to be touched by Jesus. And then this guy over here says, Jesus wasn't done talking about this yet. You can just imagine the pent-up energy and tension just wants to just explode. And Jesus the master teacher uses this interruption as an incredible opportunity to teach and that's one of the things I love about Jesus. Jesus never missed opportunities to to draw illustrations and uh, and analogies from everyday life he He loved to use parables and he uses the arrival of his of his own family, the, the arrival of those related to him by flesh and blood to teach about those who are related to him by faith and spirit. Verse thirty three. He says, answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, did he ask this rhetorically? Probably. I mean, the answer seems obvious. Go, go back to math class just a second. Do you, you remember ever being asked a question and, and giving an answer with absolutely zero confidence? What, now what, what's the answer to this equation? Seven? You, you, I can just imagine people, like, are we supposed to answer? I mean, aren't, isn't, isn't that your family? Those folks right there? That or someone else? Am I missing something? I I would have loved to have seen the faces on the crowd as they're trying to figure out what did Jesus mean by that? Now, at, at, at first look, at first glance, his response, he seems harsh and insensitive and perhaps even disrespectful to his family. So we have to ask, is Jesus shunning his family? No. God's law said, that you are to honor your father and mother and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And, as, and Jesus being one who perfectly, completely, 100% kept the law every day in every action of his life, I can tell you everything he ever did to, towards his mother was honorable. Everything he ever did, every interaction, every discussion he had towards his brothers and sisters was loving. And just to to show you that he loved his mother and honored her, one of the last things he said before he died was to tell John to take care of Mary. That was one of the last things he did. Perhaps the last instruction he gave was for John to take care of Mary. So Jesus definitely honored his mother and loved his brothers. Now, I don't know how long Jesus let them think or or postulate what the answer to his question was. And he explains himself, but but maybe as they're thinking, before he answers and as they're thinking, he does something very characteristic of himself and what good teachers do. V- verse 34 says, looking about at those who were sitting around him. Looking about. This This word... It's very similar to to the other word looking, or it has the idea of seeking. It has the idea of hunting, of looking everywhere. And this is what I do every single day, five minutes after I was supposed to leave for work, and I am looking, I am searching for my keys. I am looking everywhere. And he is, he is looking about. He is looking about as he's teaching. It, throughout the Gospels, before, as he's teaching, right when he makes a point, or right before he heals somebody, he looks around. He looks about. Why does he do this? Why do good teachers look about? Because this is how they connect with their students. This is how they connect and they make a bridge with the people that they are trying to instruct and teach, they want to make Jesus wants to make sure that they are dialed in. He wants to make sure that they are paying attention. I I had a college professor uh, who who taught a computer course, and I kid you not, every day he would go from reading the roster to then reading his his um, his teaching manual. And the tone that he had with which he read the roster was the same tone and inflection, monotonous inflection in which he would read from the teaching manual. For example, if you enter this command code, then you will get this response. And his, his face is down, never looking up, never engaging with people. That is not the kind of teacher Jesus was. He, he dialed in with his hearers especially his disciples, because what is at stake if they are not dialed in, they may miss the object lesson. They will miss the object lesson if they are not paying attention. He says, looking about at those sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brother's. The crowd had said, behold, your family is here. But Jesus said, behold, my family is here. That group is not my true family. My true family is in here right now with me. They are in here. Now, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the 12? Is he talking about the crowd of people uh, occupying the house surrounding the house mark merely says that jesus is looking at those sitting around him as he as he gives this explanation matthew 12:49 says he actually he stretches out his hands he is pointing to his disciples so at the very least at minimum jesus is is identifying his true family as his disciples, as the twelve. But it's not just them because Jesus leaves an open invitation. Look at verse 35. Not Not just these, but whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God those people constitute my true, more significant, greater family. That is a family that is greater and more significant. It, it is more meaningful than my earthly, blood-related brother, brothers and mother. That is a family that is of eternal significance. They are important. They mean something to me, but these mean more. And those who are his family are those who do the will of God. He who does the will of God, he is my family, says Jesus. Well, the will of God, what does that mean? Is Jesus calling his disciples, is he calling people to know their Bible, to know the Torah, to know the law? Is he calling them and exhorting them, to be very religious, to pull themselves up by their religious bootstraps. Go to synagogue. Go to church every week. Memorize your scripture. Fulfill your religious duty. Make sure that you're doing Christian things, that you're doing Christian deeds, that you are saying Christian things. And then, you're in, um, then you are a member of my family. Is that what he's saying? I'm hoping to see this. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. What is the will of God? Mark has already defined it for us. And that is to believe in God's Son, Jesus. That's how he began his gospel. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, For the, the first uh, uh, title or name given to him. He is the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the coming king, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. But also he is the son of God, the very eternal son of God wrapped up in incarnate flesh. He is the son of God and that has become the son of God. Of man, and as this God man who comes from god he, he as Mark has shown us, he has come preaching and teaching the kingdom and the gospel, and he is saving people so that they would might, that, that they might become the people of God, doing so by baptizing them in the spirit of God, and he has verified this by his he has verified his authority to do all of these things by performing undeniable miracles in the power of God so God seems to have invested a lot into his son what is the will of God to hear and believe and obey his son Jesus that is the will of God in the gospel of Mark. Now John, John's gospel, which was written sometime after this, says in chapter 1, 12 to 13, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but the will of God. And then later in John six forty, Jesus himself says to the scribes, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I think he said that to the crowds, not to the scribes. The will of God is that men might behold the Son and believe and have eternal life. God's will is that you might hear the gospel, that you might believe the gospel and believe that Jesus is Lord and follow him. That's what his disciples have done thus far. Jesus is not a lunatic as his family thought. He is not a liar as the scribes and Pharisees said. He is Lord. Mark's purpose is to show you that that Jesus is the son of God and thus Mark asks you as you read his gospel what will you do with him how will you respond to this message how will you respond to this person so Jesus' response to his family, to his family's call, he does two things. It provides a challenging rebuke and a comforting reminder. The challenging rebuke is to his earthly family. And he's saying to them, in effect, don't presume privilege. Don't presume that because we share the same blood, the same hemoglobin, Globin, because we share the same blood, don't presume that you have a claim over me. Don't presume that in the kingdom of God, sharing relations by upbringing or by family experiences replaces repentance and faith and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't think that your privileged position of knowing me and growing up with me replaces faith and repentance. The gospel of God is the great equalizer. Every single person who comes to salvation, every single person who receives salvation and eternal life does so through faith by grace. There are no privileged... Don't think that a privileged proximity to me substitutes that you need to come to the end of yourself and believe in me. There is not a shortcut to salvation or eternal life, not even for family. That's what Jesus' response says to his earthly family. Even his mother and brothers needed to repent. Even they needed to believe and be saved. Not even they get a free pass and what's remarkable is isn't that what we we would do if we were in a position to give out gifts and to give good things to people don't we want to give extra privileges to those that we're close to Jesus says nobody gets a free pass everyone must come to eternal life through the gospel there are no double standards and this principle applies to us today. I would warn. I would warn you in a, in a in a spirit of urgency not to presume that your proximity to Christ through your family, through your church, through your upbringing, through your life experiences, through your friends, through your offerings and tithings, and through professions that you may have made. Long ago as a, as a child, don't believe that those things, any of them, replace the place of repentance and faith in the gospel. When Jesus says to his family, even you, I, I hope that you can insert yourself into their, shoe, into their sandals for just a second. Jesus says, even you, need to come to the end of self and believe the gospel and be saved. You must sit at his feet. You must follow him. You must become his disciple. And so it, his words are a challenging rebuke to those who might presume privilege. But his words are also a comforting reminder to his disciples that their relationship to him is real, it is secure, it is blessed, it is close, and it is intimate. And, beloved, this is a reality for all who come to him humbly in faith. This is a reality for all who come to him in faith. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your upbringing was. It doesn't matter what caste and society you were born in, what your upbringing was, what your privileges were or weren't, what your heritage is, what your parents or ancestors did or didn't do. Makes no difference to Jesus. He does not turn away even the lonely. All are welcomed into the family of God, provided they believe in him, provided they receive him. And when that happens, beloved, you have the privilege of having the creator of the universe as your friend. You have God himself as your great high priest, the son who intercedes on your behalf. Before the father. You have him as the great shepherd of your souls who cares for you, who nurtures you, who provides for you. Who sends his spirit to indwell you as a deposit. Of your inheritance to come. and so the comforting reminder is also this whatever it may cost you in this life to claim discipleship it it would have co- it could have cost and often did cost a lot in this day and in centuries since then it could have costed and did cost a lot to be a disciple of Christ Jesus says in Matthew 19:29, whoever leaves houses and brothers and sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. Think about that. Whatever you might lose for the sake of being a disciple of Christ will be recompensed for you. And beloved, again, if you you don't see it coming around the corner, it is becoming very quickly, more costly to be a disciple of Christ. Not only do you get God, as if that's not enough, not only do you get God himself, but you're also brought into a family where you have a innumerable kinship that you will spend the rest of eternity with. And this is why we call each other brothers and sisters. Because in him we are family. What a blessing it is to be brought into the family of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word today. Thank you for the many times that you are patient with us, that you are loving and kind with us. Lord, please help us to see more of your person and your work in the gospel of Mark. Help us to fall even more in love with you you are the the loveliest person ever to ever to grace this earth help us to see that in this blessed and precious gospel thank you for sacrificing yourself and paying the ultimate price redeeming us so that we might be made your family amen